There's no greater bondage than to be enslaved to religion or to yourself. And the book of Exodus is a book that was written with a theme, and that theme was to serve Yahweh. In fact, in the first chapter, we see that the children of Israel are discovered under hard conditions, and in verse 14 of chapter 1, they are said to be serving the Egyptians with hard service, with service that was crushing them in their service. Four times in that one verse, we get this vision of what was going on in Egypt. You see, when Genesis ends, Joseph is in Egypt. Genesis began at the very beginning, creation. And then from there we had the fall. And then there was the flood when God saw fit to rescue eight persons from this world He was going to destroy with water. And then the dividing up of the nations. And it wasn't long after that in chapter 12 that we see a man named Abraham come on the scene. And promises were made to Abraham. A covenant was made to Abraham. And it was through a special line of Abraham that the promise would be kept. And that line was Isaac, not Ishmael. And it was Jacob, not Esau. And it was among the very sons of Jacob that Joseph would be risen up. And Joseph would actually go into the land of Egypt to rescue the children of Israel, the nation, which at that point was just 70 people from a famine that would have destroyed them. Why Egypt? Well, Egypt in those days was the breadbasket of the world. And that was because the Nile River flowed down into the sea and it divided up into many little streams and tributaries. And every single year, that Nile would flood and it would bring up all kinds of... Uh, fertilizer, shall we say, from the river, and it would cover the fields every year with water and with nutrients, and then from there would grow up so many crops that the people could never consume them on their own. In fact, during the good years, Joseph was able to secure enough food to carry the entire nation through seven years, and in fact, the entire known world at that time. In fact, when we uh, raise the curtain on Exodus, what you have is a very interesting beginning. We call it Exodus. That comes from a Greek translation of the word, which means to take somebody out. It actually doesn't appear in the Greek translation of Exodus until, I think, chapter 19. That's where we get our word Exodus from. But the original readers of this letter would have only known it as names, Shemot. That's all it does. That's how they got a title in those days for these books of Moses. They just took the very first word, which in this case was names. And what I'd like to do over the next four weeks is go through this book of names, this book of Exodus. We're not going to be able to understand the new covenant unless we understand the old covenant. We're not going to be able to understand the fulfillment 
of what Genesis was pointing to until we see it in Exodus. We're not going to fully appreciate the realities that Christ was teaching during His earthly ministry when He reached back so many times into the story of Exodus unless we understand Exodus. And so we're going to look at this in four weeks and in four parts. There are four major acts. Act one is deliverance. That's in chapters 1 to 12. Act two is redemption, 13 to 18. Act three is covenant, 19 through 24. And act four is presence, 25 through 40. The main argument of the book, serve Yahweh. The first act, deliverance. The first section, 1 to 12. We're going to break that up today into three areas, three smaller scenes. Scene one is going to be just chapters one and two, and there we're going to see that it is Yahweh who remembers. And then we're going to go from chapter three to six, and we're going to see that it is Yahweh Himself who leads. And then in chapters seven through twelve, it's Yahweh who rescues. Clearly, we're not going to have the opportunity to go through every single verse, every single time we gather, but because of the nature of this narrative, we can understand the big picture of what's being said with ease. And so it begins there in the first section, Yahweh remembers, chapters 1 and 2. So if you haven't found your way to the book of Exodus yet, please do so, and allow yourself to notice there at the very beginning that it starts with a genealogy. It starts with the names. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you might notice that the names there are not given in their birth order, and that's because every time there's a genealogy in the Bible, it's put together for a reason. It actually teaches you something. And so in this case, the author, who is Moses, writes out this genealogy in the following way. He begins with the six sons of Leah. Then he mentions one of the two sons of Rachel. Benjamin, he'll talk about Joseph a lot in a little while. And then the last four are the two sons of each of the concubines. Because in his day, what was most important was your lineage. And he wanted to give prominence to Leah's, the firstborn, then to Rachel, and then to the concubines. But there is something really fascinating going on here in chapter 1. In fact, if you look down at verse 7, you'll notice something. They are literally fulfilling the first great commission, which was to go into the world and to subdue it. God gave that instruction to male and female, to man and woman, who together bear His image equally and in mutuality together to exercise dominion over the earth, to be fruitful, to multiply. And it's exactly the same words used here in chapter 1, verse 7. They were fruitful. They were multiplying. The land was filled with them. Now, let's stop and ask ourselves a question. What land? If you were to go on to uh, Google Earth today, you can see that even at the very moment, the land of Egypt is generally desert. It's just to the west of Saudi Arabia, just southwest of modern-day Israel. It's not a region that is particularly fruitful, but there is a small section right at the end where the Nile River splits up into all the tributaries, 
and, and it's just this Y-shaped section right at the end before it dumps out into the sea. And you'll notice, even from a satellite picture, it is green and it is lush. That's the land of Goshen. That's the land that Joseph, who was number two in all of Egypt, said, my people will rest there. Now, is that because Joseph just wanted them to be in the best part of the land? That's part of it. But it's also because the Jewish people, the Israelites, the tribe of Joseph were a pretty obnoxious group to the Egyptians. They didn't like shepherds. They didn't like herdsmen. They didn't like people who were out in the fields. They preferred to be in the city. They preferred to have their food delivered to them. They were much more interested in culture and architecture rather than husbandry. And so what we have there is an amazing situation where because the people weren't even attractive to the Egyptians, they said, fine, that's great. You go live there. You go do your farming. Raise your animals. And Joseph said, that's just fine with me. And so what happened is, for hundreds of years, the people flourished there. They flourished and they became so great and so powerful and so wealthy that they began to become a risk for Pharaoh. Uh, We notice that Joseph died and that a new Pharaoh came to power, and that Pharaoh didn't remember Joseph. That word remember is interesting. It's going to be used of God later too. It's not that he didn't have a recollection of him. It's that he didn't intentionally remember a promise made to him. And so he has now done away with any privileges for Joseph and his people. And because of where they live in the northern western part of Egypt, there is a risk that some of their enemies to the west in the other portions of Africa might come across, join forces with these Israelites, and they would then become a threat to Pharaoh. And so he has a plan. Let's take these people and we're going to enslave them. We're going to make them serve us. And so he begins to force them to work He begins to clamp down on their freedoms. He requires them to build bricks so that they could then make these storage houses and storage cities so that the crops can be stored somewhere in case of war so that it could feed the armies that have to place themselves at the border to protect the nation. The nation of Israel was literally building their very ramparts that would protect them from any deliverer. And when that didn't succeed in causing them to stop flourishing, he opted for genocide. Now, he didn't want to kill all of them because you need your slaves, but he decided that if he would just kill the males, then the females that were born would obviously have to integrate with the Egyptian people. And before long, one marriage would lead to another and another and another, and the culture itself would just disappear. And so he inflicts upon the people this horrible requirement through the midwives to kill the firstborn, the sons. And what you'll notice here is that those Hebrew midwives in verse 15 are called upon to do this. Shipra and Pua. Is it interesting that we have their names? Absolutely. Why? Because when you compare that with Pharaoh's name, where's that mentioned? Oh yeah, nowhere. Pharaoh's not even named in this narrative. He's not that important. But Shipra and Pua, they were given these very respectable places in the narrative. In those days, you weren't a midwife unless you didn't have children of your own. Nobody would ever look after someone else's children if they had their own children to look after. 
And so they had no one. They had no husband. They had no children. In those days, if you were barren, uh, you were viewed as being somehow cursed by God. And so these women would have been the lowest of the low, and yet they go and they defy Pharaoh. And they say, no, we're not going to honor you. Instead, we're going to fear the Lord. And God, as a result, honors them. And he rewards them with, it says, families and children of their own, gives them husbands and gives them families. Now, it's very interesting to see the way that this particular chapter unfolds because you'll see a little bit later on in chapter 2 that the hostility ramps up. In fact, Pharaoh isn't content with just having the midwives kill the firstborn sons. Now he's going to ask all the people to voluntarily do it themselves, and then he's going to rope in his own people to help. In fact, if you had a son who was born to you, you were supposed to throw him into the Nile. And that introduces for us in chapter 2 a new family that comes on the scene, a Levite family that had a little boy, and his name was Moses. Now, we don't know what they named him, but his name later on will be revealed as Moses. But what they did is they obeyed the edict of Pharaoh, and they put him in the Nile. Just not exactly the way that Pharaoh expected. You see, this brave mother takes him and puts him in a basket, and he covers that basket with pitch, with tar, with something to waterproof it, and she places that baby in the Nile at the riverbank where she knew that the daughter of Pharaoh would come down to bathe. And so here's the scene. You've got Shipra and Pua refusing to obey the murderous edict of Pharaoh. You have Jochebed, who we'll get introduced to later. That's Moses' mother. And she puts him down there on the edge of the Nile. And you've got his sister Miriam off on the side watching to see what happens. And sure enough, here comes Pharaoh's daughter, and she hears the child is crying. And she opens up the basket, and she says, this is one of the Hebrew children. And she has compassion on him. It's one of the only places compassion is ever seen in this book. It's amazing. In the first couple chapters, all the heroes are women. They're the ones that come along. They're the ones that advance the narrative. I mean, think about the consequences that she could have faced. She is not only defying Pharaoh, she's defying her own father. Maybe she saw the same uniqueness in the child that his mother did. Earlier when it says that she saw the child was beautiful, that doesn't just mean he was attractive. I mean, what mother doesn't have a child and think it's beautiful? It wasn't just that he was attractive, it was that he was special, he was unique. There was something inside of her, the Spirit of God, indicating that this one is the one that was promised. This one would be the deliverer. And because God is sovereign over everything, He ordained that that child be discovered by that woman at that time, and that she come up with this amazing plan. Hey, little girl over there who I don't know who you are, why don't you go and get one of the Hebrew women because you look like a Hebrew and go find me a nurse who will look after this child? And Miriam says, for sure. I have just the person in mind. Goes right back home and gets who? Moses' mother. I mean, could there have been a greater turn of events? And so... Moses' mom gets to keep her child. Moses' mom gets to nurse her child. Moses' mom gets to spend three years with the child. Moses' mom gets paid to defy Pharaoh. 
and Miriam gets to watch it unfold. And as we'll see from the narratives later on, so does Moses' older brother Aaron, who must have been able to come along and raise up under a time when that edict was not in place. But what you see here is that Moses quickly grows up, and as he's done so, it's in the house of Pharaoh, and he gets the name Moses because he was given that by his adopted mother, and she gives him that name because it sounds like Mashah, which means to draw him out of the water. Well, one day, this Moses, who was about 40 years of age at the time, having grown up with all the privileges imaginable since Egypt was the absolute epicenter of the civilized world at that time, was going out to survey what was happening among his people. Now, 40 years in bondage, and he sees one of them striking another. Interesting word, same word that's going to be used for the striking of the water that Moses does and the striking of the land that God does. There's a striking of one to the other. And these two are, are fighting. And when he says to them, why are you going after each other? They say, what, are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? <gasps> they know. Why? Because earlier Moses had done something very foolish. In his own anger, he struck an Egyptian that was abusing one of his people, and he buried him in the sand. But like so many sins that we bury in the sand, it's not long before we realize that it's not a secret. And now Moses doesn't know what to do. He says, the only way for me to survive when this gets up to Pharaoh is if I flee. And so here is the one man preserved for 40 years, the one man of the Hebrew nation, the one man who had all the influence, the one man who had all the wealth and all the power and all the education. If there was anybody that you would put at the top of your list to be your redeemer, it would have been Moses. And when you look around to find him, he is fleeing. He is headed east. And he makes his way east as fast as he can. It was possible to get there by land since the Suez Canal had not been built yet. And so he made his way all the way east into a region called Midian, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia. And there his story is going to pick up, and it's going to change dramatically from what he was used to as a young man growing up. One of the things that we see early on is that as he flees towards Midian, he encounters some women who are trying to get their flocks watered. You have to remember that Moses wasn't raised as a shepherd. Moses was raised as a prince. Egyptians didn't like shepherds. So when Moses showed up here at the well, it's not like he could be much help in terms of the shepherding, but there's one thing he could do is he could fight off these wicked shepherds who were giving these women a hard time. You know, the first people that Moses delivers are the daughters of Jethro. In fact, they say as much, uh, this man came along and we were trying to water our flocks and we couldn't, but you know what? He delivered us. That's why we're home early. We're normally never home early, but we were today because of Moses and their father says, well, where is he? Go get him. Bring him in. Let's give him some dinner. Let's get to know this guy. And not only did they get to know him, he also gave Zipporah to be his wife. Moses' uh, fortunes changed pretty quick. He goes from being a prince in Egypt to being a fugitive to being the husband of a shepherd out in Midian, modern-day Saudi Arabia. And as chapter Two wraps up. I want you to see what it says because it's absolutely fascinating. Verses 24 and 25. When the cries 
of the people come to God after the death of Pharaoh. God responds by saying, I have heard and I have remembered my covenant, not because I forgot, but because I am actively going back to what I had promised and I will fulfill it. I've heard, I've remembered, I've seen, and I know you. It's the Hebrew word for know in the most intimate way. It's a euphemism used for when husband and wife know one another and a child is produced. He says, I've known you. You see, Yahweh remembers. Number two, Yahweh leads. Look, beginning in chapter three, and we'll see this unfold for us. Moses is out walking. He's taking the flock over to the west side, and he sees something off in the horizon, and it's fascinating to him. It wasn't entirely uncommon in those days, but this was something that got his attention for sure. It was a bush that was on fire. Sometimes lightning strikes would cause this, and he walked over to the bush, not because it was on fire, but because it was on fire and it wasn't being consumed. This is highly unusual, and so he walked up, and before he realizes it, he is engaged in an encounter with the living God. It was the angel of the Lord who appeared in the fire. Now, I need to make something very clear to us right now. It is the angel of the Lord in the fire. The angel of the Lord, the same term used in Joshua 5.15, and this is what it's like when the second person of the Trinity manifests himself in a visible way prior to the incarnation. And this is the second person of the Trinity. And he arrives as a flame in a bush. Now you'll notice that the words come from Yahweh. The words come from the great I Am. The words come from Yahweh through the angel of the Lord. This is an indication of the Trinitarian reality. You see, it's Yahweh, God the Father, as it were, speaking through the angel of the Lord, the Son, so that Moses might be able to hear from God and not be consumed. The angel of the Lord is protecting the bush from being consumed, but the angel of the Lord is also protecting Moses from being consumed. But he gets close enough and he is told, no, this is holy ground. Take off your shoes. When you wore shoes, it was the sign that you had authority over something. It was the sign of ownership. And he says, take off your shoes. You don't own this land. There is only one holy land. And it's the holy land that God said was holy when Moses came. And so he says to Moses, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people, verse 7, chapter 3, who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And Yahweh says, I'm going to lead. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good land, into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. The best translation of that is to understand the milk as likely being goat's milk and the honey not so much being from bees, since that was very uncommon uh, in those days, especially in Egypt, but rather the sweet nectar that came from 
dates and figs and grapes. It was the, the sweetness that came from the fruit. It was the absolute epitome of everything that had to do with livestock, the milk, and everything that had to do with crops, this sweet nectar that came from the fruit of the vine. He says, I'm going to lead you up into a land like that. Remember what the spies bring back from the land of Canaan? A massive set of grapes. You see, this is what he was talking about. I will take you to that kind of land. And you might ask the question, well, who is this? If I go to my people and I say, you're going to do it, they're going to ask me who? Because they've been in bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years. Uh, they have lost sight of the fact that they are monotheists. They have lost sight of the fact that these gods of the nations are not real. They're expecting me to come in the name of a god. What do I do? What should be the name that I give them? And he says in chapter 3, verse 14, you call them I am. Literally in the Hebrew, haya, it is not a name per se. I am, God is saying, is my name, but my name, if you translate that, is simply be, am, was, is. He doesn't say, I've got a name in the sense of a name that you would put on the door. He says, I've got this name, but my name is that I always have been, always will be. I am essence. I am being. I am is. You tell them that that God is the God who is sending you, their God, the God who has remembered them. And so because Moses is worried about how this might go when he's talking to the people, God says, I'm going to give you some signs. I'm going to allow your staff to become a serpent. I'm going to allow your hand to become leprous. I'm going to let you take water and pour it on the ground and it becomes blood. I'm going to allow you to show to all the people and to all of Pharaoh's household that I am the God who sent you, and I have control over the animals. I have control over disease. I have control over the land. I'm going to own all of it. And as we're going to see later on at the very end of chapter 12, all the plagues were brought to bring destruction to the land, to the people, and to the gods of the Egyptians. And so Moses continues with his protest, though he doesn't want to go. He says, I, I, I'm not ready for this. And so God says to him in his benevolence and in his patience, and though he be angry, he says to Moses, fine, your brother is on his way out to meet you. Forty years in the wilderness, and, and your brother's on his way out. Remember Aaron, when he gets here, I'll let you speak through him. You're going to be like me. He's going to be the prophet. And between the two of you, we're going to get this message to Pharaoh and my people. It's very interesting to me that Moses is taken out from the high point of being in Egypt to the very low point of being in Midian. It's only now that God says, I am ready after 40 years to use you to rescue my people. Abraham's not a young man. Abraham's 80. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Moses is 80. Aaron is 83. So it's not like uh, they're the youngest guys in the world. But God says sometimes it takes a good 80 years to prepare a man to lead with humility. Later on in Deuteronomy, we read that Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. Interestingly enough, Moses wrote that. <laughs> you really have to be humble to write that. But it's not uncommon for men of great gifting to have to do their time in the wilderness. 
He spent 40 years there being prepared. Our Lord spent 40 days, not in order to humble, but in order to prove the fact that it is God who will provide. And so Moses and Aaron are now ready, and they begin the trek back. You can pick up the story in chapter 4 in verse 18. Moses goes back to his father-in-law, and he says, please let me go, and he says, go in peace. And so as they're on their way, Yahweh tells him, you know, it's very critical for us to get something straight here, and that is in chapter 4 and verse 22, that Israel, the one that you are going to redeem, is my firstborn son. Israel is my beloved son. You see, Israel has always been the one that prefigured Christ. Just like Christ came because he is the greater Adam, the greater Noah, the greater Abraham, the greater Moses, the greater David, he is also the greater Israel. You see, he is the one who came to fulfill everything that Israel failed to do. And in fact, earlier in chapter 1, verse 10, when we talk about the fact that it is these Israelites that are growing and we have to deal shrewdly with them, if you were to look at the original Hebrew, it's not plural, it's singular. Pharaoh says, we need to deal with him. Even Pharaoh seemed to realize that this nation embodied a person. It was like the firstborn son of God. And so as they make their way back towards Egypt, something very important happens because God sets himself up against Moses. God arrives and God intends to kill Moses. Why would God, after delivering him thus far, set out to kill him? Because Moses had been disobedient. Moses had failed to circumcise his son. Moses had failed to obey God. And so it's fascinating in the narrative of these women heroes in the story, Zipporah, his wife, comes along and she does what Moses was not willing to do. She does what Moses failed to do. Zipporah delivers Moses. She gets between Yahweh and Moses and takes her son, who's a teenager by this point, and circumcises him and throws the foreskin at Moses and says, you've made me a, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. That's a pretty dramatic story, isn't it? Pretty dramatic episode. You see, Zipporah wasn't sure what was going on. She knows that Moses has come from Egypt. Egyptians were also commonly engaged in the act of circumcising. The Jews weren't the only ones who circumcised. She says, you're, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Are you going to bring us back to Egypt? Or are you going to try to reclaim your throne? Your own God, Yahweh, who you say is going to deliver us, just now is set out to kill you. She had to step in to rescue and deliver. She was the true Azer Kenegdo. She was the true one that we translate helper, such a, a lame translation in Genesis. Word used for God, mostly, deliverer. And so after this dramatic scene, Moses continues on his way with Aaron, and he's got a meeting. He's got to set up some kind of interaction with Pharaoh. And so he brings the people together to encourage them with what God is going to do. Aaron speaks to the people, and at the end of chapter 4, the people believe. Now, chapter 4, things are going really well, but chapter 5, things take a really ugly turn. And we can summarize it this way. Moses waltzes in to Pharaoh, and he says to him, I want you to let my people go. 
Now, I know that's what it says in the movies, but there's more to it than that. It's not just let my people go. It's let them go so that they can serve me, so they can worship me, not worship you and your gods. And so, Pharaoh asks one of the most important questions anywhere in the book of Exodus. Chapter 5, verse 2, who is Yahweh that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let them go. That's not the way it was supposed to happen. He was supposed to go in and do signs and miracles, and Pharaoh was to be impressed, and he was to let the people go. But instead, he says, no, I'm not going to let them go, and not only are they going to be my slaves, but I'm going to make it harder for them. I'm going to take away their ability to make these bricks I'm going to make it much, much harder, but I'm not going to reduce the quota. In fact, I'm going to make it harder for them. And now it's gotten so hard that the foremen who were Israelites, they go to Pharaoh and they say, this is impossible. You're going to kill us out there. We can't make the same number of bricks if you take away our building material. And as they go outside, they meet Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron are like, how'd it go in there? And they're like, thanks. You guys have made us a stench to the Egyptians. You've made it worse. I wish you'd never come. We were slaves before, but now we are doomed. We're going to die out there, and it's because of you. You got to go strolling into Pharaoh, and you got to tell him to let us go. Well, you know what? At least when we were here, we weren't getting killed before you arrived. And Moses and Aaron don't know what to do. It's a leadership crisis. They turn to God and they're like, what? I wish I'd never had this encounter with you. I wish you'd never sent us. You said you were going to deliver them and you didn't. You see, chapter 5 ends in a very dark spot. But Yahweh leads. And Yahweh says, as dark as it appears, there's going to be a morning and here's how it's going to work. Look at chapter 6. Yahweh says to them, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am their God. I did not reveal my name to them the way that I have to you two. He says, I have heard again. I have remembered. And then chapter 6, verse 6, one of the most important verses in all of the book. He says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. God says, I will be there. And I give you this genealogy at the end of chapter 6 just to show you that it is Moses and Aaron, the sons of Levi, the sons of Leah, the sons of Jacob, of Isaac, of Abraham. The God who made the covenant back in Genesis 15 is going to fulfill it with you. And the genealogy just ends to prove that. Now this brings us to the third part. Yahweh rescues. Verse, chapters 1 and 2, Yahweh remembers. Chapter 3 to 6, Yahweh leads. Chapter 7 to 12, Yahweh rescues. It's very interesting at the beginning of chapter 7 that once again Yahweh says to Moses, you are the one who is going to go, and through Aaron you are going to speak to the people. 
And though, verse 7, Moses was 80 and Aaron was 83, they go and they prove themselves by working these miracles. They prove themselves to the other magicians. Because you see, even in those days, through the magical arts and perhaps demonic power, those magicians around Pharaoh, they were able to do similar things, similar tricks. And so what Aaron proves is that God is greater than the gods of the magicians. Although they can turn their staffs into snakes as well, but then Aaron's staff snake eats up all their other staff snakes. Episode after episode after episode, it is Yahweh versus the gods of the nations. And with that as the setup for everything, we get into the story of the plagues. Now, there are 10 plagues, as you know, and we don't know exactly how long these 10 plagues took to unfold. But we do know that there are several features of the plagues that make it very clear that every one of these plagues was set up specifically to demonstrate the power of Yahweh over the gods of the nations. There are a lot of other ways God could have demonstrated that He was the real God. He could have done other things. He could have said to Moses, stretch out your hand and made all the pyramids like flip over. But instead, what he does is, is systematically, he goes through and he undermines the power of all the other gods of the Egyptians. You see, nobody back in those days was an atheist. Back in chapter 5, verse 2, when he says, I don't know Yahweh, he wasn't saying, I don't believe in God. He was just saying, I've never heard of your God. They had all their own. Everybody was a polytheist back then. You worshiped a, a God for everything. And so one of the gods that was most worshipped by the Egyptians was the god of the Nile. In fact, it was said that the blood of the gods flowed through the Nile. The Nile was everything for them. No Nile, no water, no water, no food, no food, no life. The Nile was everything for them. They worshipped the Nile. And so what does God do? He turns the Nile into blood and all the streams into blood, the ponds into blood, even the water that you had gathered earlier that morning that was in the pot in your house was turned to blood. And everything inside died, and it began to stink, and it was filling the entire region, the stench of death, the stench of decaying blood and the stench of decaying animals. And the people had to dig down by the side of the Nile to try to get some fresh water. And then the next plague was a plague of frogs. There was a frog god there. He had the head of a frog. And so up from the Nile and the region come all of these frogs, and frogs are everywhere. And then again, it's the same pattern. Pharaoh says, watch, my guys can do that too. And some of them were able to produce some frogs. But the reality is they couldn't control the frogs. They couldn't control the blood. And so what happens is Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let you go. And the frogs overwhelm the people, and they give up, and he says, fine, you may go. Then come the gnats, the gnats in chapter 8, 16 to 19. Some people call this lice. We don't know exactly what they were, but these were the, the little crawling things. You can barely see them. They covered your body. They made life miserable. Not only had the Nile been struck and the frogs come out, but now people are themselves covered with this lice, covered with these stinging gnats. Uh, this was going directly after the god of pestilence. And the same formula, 
Pharaoh says no, and then the plague comes, and he says yes, but then he changes his mind, and he won't let the people go. This carries on through the next one, which is the plague of flies. Flies covered everybody. Notice it, except in Goshen, except the people of Israel. They didn't have the plagues. It was everybody else. And so these flies came, and there was a fly god in Egypt, the head of a fly, Obviously, God attacking that. But then things got even worse for the people, and it was the livestock. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. All the livestock that were in the field, God killed. Now, that meant that it was whatever livestock were working out in the field, maybe at harvest time, livestock that weren't in barns or some kind of shelter. And God brings down a curse upon them and kills them. One of the gods they used to worship was a god that had the head of a bull. This would have been directly against him. Then came the boils, chapter 9, 18 through 12. By this point, the magicians don't even show up on the scene to try to do the same thing because they're covered in boils. They have to call in sick because the whole boil thing, that, that's a little worse than everything else. In Egypt, it was very important how you looked. In Egypt, it was very important that you were considered clean. Remember, they didn't even like shepherds who were outside with the animals, so nobody showed up anywhere if they had boils from head to toe. You couldn't even do anything. They were crippling. It was the kind of pain that Job was in. They just wanted to kill themselves, covered in boils. Then comes the hail, the hail with the lightning in the sky. God even warns the people. He says, listen, if you bring your animals in under the shelter, if you bring your servants in under the shelter, they won't get destroyed by the hail. Everyone who listened was spared. Everyone who didn't was destroyed, and their animals were destroyed, and the crops were destroyed. Certain crops were in season at that time, ready to be harvested, and they were destroyed. Which makes the next plague all the worse, because then the locusts came. The locusts came like this big, thick blanket of darkness over the land, and they absolutely decimated everything. They ate all the grain. I mean, here's Egypt, the breadbasket of the world. The one nation that depended on the Nile River for everything, and the Nile has been struck. The frogs have come and attacked them rather than deliver them. The flies have swarmed around and made them a mess to themselves even. The gnats and the lice have covered them. Their livestock have been destroyed in the field. Boils have covered their body. Hail has come down and struck down the crop that remained, and then now the locusts come and eat up everything that remains. Egypt is now a desert a wasteland, a bloody stench. And as if things couldn't get any worse, without any warning, darkness falls. It falls on all the people. It falls on the land, except for in Goshen. It absolutely consumes them, so much so it says that for three days no one got up out of their bed Imagine a darkness that is so thick, so heavy. The text says you could feel it, a darkness you could feel. Have you ever been in a place so dark, so utterly and completely dark that you could feel it? Feel the darkness. Three days, it was like that. Of course, it wasn't like that where the Israelites were. They could walk around just fine. They had light where they were. But the moment you came into the land of Egypt, it was black. It's kind of like what it's like for some of us who live west of here. You drive along the freeway, it's nice and sunny, and the minute you get to El Camino exit, you walk into this massive marine lair. And you think to yourself, I thought I was paying all this money to live in a sunny place. 
Now, that's bad enough, but imagine absolute blackness. One of the gods that they served was the god Ra. You ever heard of him, the sun god? I mean, when you think about Egypt, even in the modern culture, it's the sun god that was worshipped, and it's that sun god that is struck. And then there's just one more, one of the most dramatic, and that is death. From blood to frogs to gnats to flies to livestock to boils to hail to locusts to darkness and then finally to death. He says, I will kill your firstborn. It's fascinating. God said earlier, Israel is my firstborn. If you don't let them go, I'm going to kill your firstborn. And God is true to his word. And it's exactly what happens because Pharaoh isn't able to do anything about it. He refuses to let the people go. And then in one of the most dramatic scenes, he says after that, plague is declared. Every man and his neighbor and every woman to her neighbor are to ask for gold and silver because when the time comes to lead my people out, not only am I going to let you come out alive, not only am I going to let you come out with your animals, but I'm going to let you come out with whatever is left in Egypt. The water is gone. The crops are gone. The people are gone. Now you're going to pillage them and you're even going to take their silver and gold, because I'm going to be using that later on when you build something to worship me. And so he promises that he will come, and that angel of death will come. And, and once again, what's so fascinating is that it is Yahweh himself who rescues. He is the one who goes out over the land of Egypt. He is the one who sends his angel down to kill the firstborn of the people and the firstborn of the animals. He says, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt, chapter 11, verse 9. Well, this brings us to the last section in chapter 12, and that is the Passover itself. When was the Passover to be celebrated? God gives some very specific instructions. It's from the 10th to the 14th day of the month that was established by God for his people. What are they supposed to do? They're to take a lamb or they're a goat that's one year old. It has to be a male, and it has to be perfect. How are they to prepare this? Uh, they are to slit its throat and collect some of the blood. They are to take a hyssop branch and they are to dip it in the blood and then splatter it on the doorpost so that the angel, the Passover angel, will literally pass over their home. But the rest of the animal is not to be butchered and cut up. You're not supposed to do anything to it that might break one of its bones. And so instead, you put the whole animal over the fire and you roast it like one of the few whole burnt offerings that God takes for himself. And that animal is to be roasted, and then it is to be shared among the people in the household that it was for. Why do you do this? Because it is a judgment that was over man, over animals, over false gods. We see this in chapter 12, verse 12. God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments I am Yahweh. And God did exactly as he said. Then he gives them the feast of unleavened bread and explains what they are to do going forward with both the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread. And then he says this of himself down in chapter 12 and verse 42. He says, it was a night of watching by Yahweh. What a beautiful thought. Yahweh watching. Yahweh is up. Yahweh is doing the night watch. 
Yahweh is looking over his people. Yahweh is delivering them. Yahweh is killing the firstborn of their enemies. Yahweh is destroying the gods of the nations. And that's why they then make it a night of watching kept to the Lord to this day, they said. The Passover is instituted, and one of the gracious acts of God in this Passover is that he makes it open to all. It's not just for Jews. God has always had a concern for the vulnerable. He's always had a concern for the orphan, the widow, and the alien. And so if you are a sojourner and you're not Jewish, he says you too can be part of the Passover. All you have to do is show evidence of conversion. You'd be circumcised and you can come in and you can receive all the benefits that were extended to my people. And so he uh, explains that in particular here at the end of chapter 12. Verse 51 wraps it up with these words, and on that very day, Yahweh brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts, by their ranks, by their divisions, by their tribes. Yahweh remembers, chapter 1 and 2. Yahweh leads, chapter 3 to 6. Yahweh rescues, 7 to 12. We won't understand the book of Exodus, nor will we understand the old covenant unless we see that it all points to Christ. In chapters 1 and 2, the story of the ark, the basket, same word in Hebrew, looks back to the time of Noah creating an ark to save from the wrath of God. A little ark is made for Moses who would lead his people out from the wrath of Pharaoh. And in 1 Peter 3, we see that all of that was pointing to Christ, a baptism, an immersion into him, not into water, it says, to save you, but into Christ. He is the ark. He is the protection. In the next part, Christ is in the fire. He is the servant of the Lord. He is the one who reveals God, the intermediary, the mediator between God and man. He is there. And then Christ in the Lamb. We see that when that's declared, behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Christ in all the Scriptures. Christ revealed in the Exodus, Christ, the one to whom we look, ultimately, not for just an exodus from this life one day into the new, but even from this world and this body at the resurrection and the new earth. Amen? What we're about to celebrate together is called the Lord's Table, and it was what New Covenant believers celebrate instead of Passover. And so as you prepare to receive that, let's bow and give thanks to our God for making it possible. Our Father, we thank You for the privilege of being called as those who are Your firstborn sons grafted into Israel, that we might be the Israel of God. Father, we thank You for the invitation to this table, and we ask that through it we might be able once again to be renewed in our love and our appreciation for all that You have done for us in Christ. The One whom You immerse us into, like Moses in the basket, like Noah in the ark, the one that speaks to us, the one who became one of us that he might save us, and the one who laid down his life for us so that every prophecy regarding the Lamb be fulfilled in him. Oh Lord, we look forward to that day when in the kingdom we will eat and drink with him. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen.